you have an idea and you think it's good at the time and then you've got to follow through on it. Most of our ideas, um, and this is one of those, whenever um, we were putting together this idea of vision, we thought it was great, got all excited, and we thought about the first one, I thought about Trinity, and I thought, brilliant! And then my name was put beside it, and shh, you, go. It was your idea. <laughs> go away. Your idea. That's what I said, sometimes you have an idea, and then it bites you back. Um, so we're going to explore um, Trinity this morning, and how we're going to do it in... Um, in a certain amount of time that we've got. Um, it could be 20 minutes, it could be two days, we'll see. Um, we're going to take a little journey, probably through history, with a bit of mathematics thrown in. Maybe we'll have a little bit of physics, chemistry, a bit of metaphysics as well, a bit of philosophy, a bit of geometry, a bit of grammar, and maybe even a bit of theology, you never know. <laughs> Is that all right? You better be comfortable. <laughs> We're looking at vision over these next uh, few weeks. As Lisa said last week, majority of the country is probably talking about vision 2020 or 2020 vision. And, uh, and we're looking at our vision over the, the next few weeks. And the core vision is meet God, meet friends, make a difference. So that everything we do as SBC should be able to be gathered under these three headings. So if you're in a coffee shop, this is the idea. If someone says, what's your church about? You can say, well, this is our, our objectives. Our meet God, meet friends, make a difference. And then they're springboards. So we're looking at meet God for the first three weeks. And so we're looking at this first one. Meet God, but well, God, that's, that's, that's like, like a big word, isn't it? And so one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts is Acts 17. <clears throat> and it's where Paul comes along to Athens. Now, I've never been to Athens, but I've been to some other kind of Greco-Roman places. And there's just loads of statues everywhere, loads of gods. And just to hedge their bets, in Athens, they have this statue to an unknown god just to cover the bases, to make sure nobody's annoyed. And then Paul comes out with this great line. He says, what you have is unknown. Let me make known to you. Because inside every one of us, and Paul says it in, in, or it says in Acts, I see that you're religious people. Actually, across the world, the human nature is to be a worshipping being. Whether you're a theist, uh, whether you believe in God or not, whether you're agnostic, whether you're atheist, or just somewhere in between, we all worship something. We have an inner-built need to worship. Sometimes it's worshiping ourselves. Sometimes it's the great um, pound, dollar, and whatever. Uh, we can be worshiping what, whatever, but actually every one of us worships. And Augustine, one of the kind of early church fathers, he talks about the fact that we are restless until we find our, our souls find rest with him. People have talked about the God-shaped hole in our hearts. We're all wanting and needing to worship something. So when we say meet God, does that mean anything goes? Any God? Any spirituality? Well, actually, no. It's not anything goes. We can only know, we can only meet this God. We can only know this God because he has made himself known to us. He is the prime mover. He is the one who has shown himself to us. We could search for all eternity, and we'd never find it off our own steam, only because God has revealed himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's important that we state at the very outset that we are a Trinity church. We're a Trinity church because that is how God has revealed himself to us. 
For many years, it has been the mark of orthodoxy. So if you don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are outside the Christian communion because Christianity relies on the Trinity. It's incredibly vital. You can't actually be Christian in the real sense without being Trinitarian. It is thoroughly biblical concept and it is thoroughly baffling. <laughs> Isn't it? The thing about Trinity... One God in three persons. This word, Trinity, um, it's incredibly complex, isn't it? In fact, there's a, a story that uh, Thomas, uh, Beckett, Thomas Beckett, when he was Archbishop of Canterbury before he you know, got killed, um, he bemoaned the fact that people didn't think about the Trinity enough. So he, um, in his position as Archbishop of Canterbury, said, Every, once a year, you need to preach on the Trinity. And I don't know if anyone has been to Fountains Abbey nearby. Has anyone been? You, you, know, you give us a nod if you have. Okay, great. Well, apparently, there's a story there about the chapter house that the monks would gather there every Sunday to hear the abbot preach a sermon, apart from Trinity Sunday, because <laughs> it was too confusing. Okay? And at least it just referred to it. Even some of our songs don't tackle some of the idea of Trinity because it's just too big, too complicated. If it was so complicated, why did the church ever come up with it? Been a lot easier to leave it behind. And why is it so important to us? We're going to look at those things in the next few moments. Why is this important to be a Trinity church? And the first thing is this. It is the truth. It is the truth that God has revealed himself as three in one. So the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. In one sense, you could say it's not biblical, but it just it doesn't appear in the Bible. It was by a, a, a scholar called Tertullian in the third century who kind of came up with it, with the words try and unity, to try and get a concept across that there, wasn't, there weren't any words for. So that's where the word Trinity came from. It's not in the Bible itself, but it is thoroughly throughout the entirety of Scripture, the concept. Trinity, one God, three persons. So let's start with this. One God. Israel always had at the heart of its identity and its faith the belief in one God. Throughout the Bible is the monotheistic belief that God is one. It's a monotheistic uh, religion within a whole realm of polytheistic many gods. And even in the Old Testament times, it wasn't just um, polytheism, it was called henotheism. So I've got my God in this city, there's a different God in that city, and a different one over there. Israel said, forget that, there is one God. And that's reflected in this passage, in this verse, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. And it was, re it was repeated over and over again. It's the core of, of prayer life in Judaism, affirming again and again and again that God is one. And we see that exclusivity throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. We see it in the commandments. We see it when Israel falls down and when Judah falls down. It's because they mess around with other gods when God says there is only one. It is fundamental to the Jewish identity. So it's not just in the Old Testament that we hear this. Actually, the New Testament and the Gospels are consistent with the oneness of God. <clears throat> we have in Mark chapter 12, 
not there. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He starts with these words. Hear, O Lord, uh, hear, O Israel, O Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus affirms the oneness of God. In John 17, verse 3, it says he is the only true God. Then we move into um, the New Testament letters. We have 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, there's no other God but one. And in Galatians 3 and 20, he says, God is one. That's only a two out of a number of ones where it affirms the unity of God. So we know that God is one. How many is God? Yeah, but he's also three. God is revealed as three persons. Jesus, when God wanted to show us, show humanity what God looked like, what he was like, he sent us Jesus. We looked at this over Christmas, particularly at the carol service, that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? You look at the image of Jesus. In fact, it was in our passage today in John 14. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what he said to one of his disciples. And later on, it doesn't just stop with Jesus and the Father. He goes on in verse 16 and beyond. I, Jesus, will ask the Father to send another counselor to you, another comforter, another companion. Not me with another mask on, not God the Father coming down with a different kind of costume, but another counselor. Here we have in John 14, the Trinity. And it's not just here. What about the incarnation? We've read all those passages over Christmas. Luke chapter 2, at the very moment of conception, the Trinity is present, where God sends the, the angel Gabriel to Mary and says, you will have a child. That child in your womb will be Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. How? Through the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is there at incarnation. And it is also there really clearly uh, here. So the very outset of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, we see, for all to see, all in eternity to see, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son obediently taking his place in baptism. Heaven tearing open and the Spirit descending like a dove and the voice of the Father affirming Jesus and who he is. The Trinity. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Fast forward to Matthew 28. And we see Jesus' commission. 
to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Topping and tailing in the ministry of Jesus is the knowledge and the awareness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'll go back one. And then we have in, in the New Testament, we have these references to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll look at one of them particularly in a bit. But it talks about 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, about the gifts come from um, one Lord, one Spirit, and, 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 different, and one God. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then familiar words from 2 Corinthians 13 and 14. We finish the service with it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We share that, and maybe sometimes we forget it's Trinitarian. It's just what you, it's like saying bye bye in Christian speak, isn't it? But there it is in the New Testament, this affirmation of the Trinity. So, what was it? Was it like there was one God in the Old Testament and then there were three bits revealed? Actually, it's a bit more complicated than that because the Bible tells us that God gradually reveals Himself. It's called progressive revelation. We'll look at it in just a moment in a bit more detail. But have you ever watched one of those TV programs? Um, and uh, yeah, stay there. Um, and it's like one of those mystery ones, or it's like a movie, and there's a, you know, it's building towards a climax. There's, it's maybe a, a murder mystery or something like that. And at the very end, the denouement of the whole drama, and there's a massive twist. And then when you realize what happened, the resolution of the situation, you realize all the way through the book or the movie or the series were all these little clues and hints that all of a sudden make sense. There's a movie called Book of Eli. Has anyone seen that? It's a cracky movie, a bit violent, but you know, hey. Um, and there's a massive twist at the end. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Massive twist at the end. You do not see it coming. But then you go, but, but what about this? And you go and re-watch the movie, and you go, oh, well, it was clearly obvious there, and it's clearly obvious there, and it's clearly obvious there. You cannot see, it totally ruins the movie forever again. But actually, all these clues were there all along, but they didn't make sense until you saw the completed picture. That's exactly what happens with the Old Testament going into the New Testament. The revelation of Jesus and the, and the revealing of the Holy Spirit makes sense of Trinity throughout Scripture. We're going to look just very briefly at three places in the Old Testament. First of all, at the very, very start, way back at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and God created the heavens and the earth, didn't he? Yeah. The word God is Elohim, which is fine, isn't it? Until you realize Elohim is plural. It says God, but it actually is more than one. Elohim. Now, at the time and in Jewish tradition, they say it's like the royal we. But actually, is this a hint of something? What about a little bit later on when it says, uh, and God said, let us make man in our own image. They say, well, maybe you just talk about the angels. Well, actually... We're not modeled on the angels. We are modeled in the image of God. Yet he says, let us make man in our own image. Interesting little hint there. And then we look a bit later on in Genesis chapter 18, the story of Abraham at the tree of Mamre. And three guests turn up, three men turn up. And uh, Abraham is aware that, that it is God. And it says, three men turn up, the Lord speaks. There is one voice, but three people. And this is often re reflected in this um, 
icon that Rubrev has done about the this idea of these guests maybe give a hint that this is Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, if anyone's seen the Bible miniseries um, that they did a few years ago, the guy who plays Jesus in the New Testament is one of these three guests. Hints, clues, perhaps. And then let's go back to this really key phrase. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 it said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It absolutely says there is one God there, yes? But the Hebrew word is echad. And echad is more than just the number one. In fact, for, for Hebrew, if you were doing counting, the number would be yachad. Echad is a community of oneness. It's the word that's used when it says about a man and woman coming together and are united in one flesh. There is a coming together as a one. It is a unity of parts. So when it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is echad. It could say the other word. But is it hinting at something else? These are only hints because God has progressively revealed who he is. And as we talk about progressive revelation, some people say, well, what if God shows us something which is completely different to how he was in the past? Can I teach you five ends? They're really quick, I promise. Right? When it comes to progressive revelation, the gradual revealing of who God is, here are the ends. New, not negate, not new. I worked hard on that one. In other words, if something is new, a new revelation of God that is not consistent with everything that has happened and revealed of God in the past, then it is not true. The new does not negate the not new because God is consistent. So it is the same same character of the Father, the same character of the Son, same character of the Holy Spirit is progressively revealed to us. And this is important. It's important because this is the truth. This is the one God. When we say we want to meet God, we are meeting the triune God. Three persons, one God, each person distinct and concurrent in their person and their identity, but they are one in essence. They are God, three in one. But the problem is, that just doesn't make sense, does it? Oh, maybe it does to you. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. And so why is it also important? It's important because it's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. The idea of one God, three persons who are completely individual, but yet all one at exactly the same time, it's difficult to get your head around. And I was challenged by this, <clears throat> by the blessed Martin Lee. Where are you, mate? He's, he's a deep theologian. We talked about this as a team last Wednesday. And uh, Martin, who is our wizard of, of buildings and measuring kind of pipes and you know, nuts and bolts and measures and centimeters, and you like things straight and like that, don't you? Yeah. Martin came out with this amazingly profound statement about the, Holy, about the Trinity. He said, the Trinity does my head in. <laughs> and I say, amen, brother, because it does. In fact, as noted, this word Trinity was kind of invented to grasp something that was not graspable. And it shouldn't surprise us. Why or indeed how could we expect the infinite, transcendent God to actually make sense to our puny little brains? It's like hoping that your chihuahua will be able to work out how to invent the internet. 
It doesn't make sense. It's beyond the scope of comprehension. And why wouldn't be surprised? Job in 11.7 says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? It was Augustine, again, he said, basically, if you, if you can fully comprehend God, then it ain't God. God is beyond your comprehension. We cannot button God down into small boxes. And so the Jewish tradition can handle all this kind of dichotomy and ambiguity and kind of mystery. But the gospel spread to the Greek world, and they're a bit like Martin. They liked a bit of order, and they went, okay, how does this work? Okay, let me measure it. Let's see if we can get a formula about this. And so with the Greek logics uh, and the philosophy kicked in, they tried to get hold of something for which is not able to be grasped. And so a whole bunch of heresies grew up as people wrestled with this nature of God. How can God be, how can Jesus be man and God at the same time? Doesn't make sense. Three in one, that doesn't make sense either. And so there are lots of different ways of trying to understand this. And I feel a bit sorry for some of these heretics <laughs> because they were trying their best. But again, they didn't hold fire to those five ends. What were they? New, 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 new. Okay. The new does not negate the not new. So some of the things they came up with negated some of the other things about God. We have one called Arianism, where he believed there was only one God and Jesus was his creation. The first creation, he was a really special one, but he wasn't God. Sorry, that doesn't work. Salvation doesn't work then. And then there was a guy called Sibelius, um, not the composer, Sabelius, and this idea of modalism. There is one God, there are three persons, but it's like a, a relay race. So God the Father created everything, passed it on to Jesus the Son who did his job, then he passed it on to the Spirit. That doesn't work. We have it in the baptism of Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are there in the same place at the same time. This led to the creeds to try and formulate, try to put into words Something which is really impossible to put into words. And so this guy called, um, so this creed called the Athanasian Creed came about, which is confusing because Athanasius didn't write it. I don't know. I'm sure there's copyright involved somewhere. But anyway, this is what it says. And with this, this will clarify everything, okay? But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the co-majesty, co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. And yet, there are not three incomprehensibilities, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. That's only part of the Athanasian Creed. There are 44 statements, 28 of which are about the Trinity, and it still doesn't capture it because it's impossible to. We fare a little better. We've got lovely pictures, haven't we? We've got the water, steam, and ice, the classic alpha one, which is great. The three natures of God, there's water, steam, and ice all existing. They're all water, but in different forms. It's good, but it's not quite there. We have the sun, bright sun up in the sky. We have the radiance, the heat of the sun, and we also have, we see things by the light of the sun. Useful, but not entirely. An egg, it's a shell, but it's also a yolk, and it's also the white. Kind of helps, but it still doesn't answer all those things. And then one of my favorites, to be sure, the shamrock. Okay, St. Paddy going around the fields going, my goodness, I left my PowerPoint at home. Here, pick up a bit of a, look, three in one. It kind of fits, but kind of doesn't. And if we get confused with that, think about nuclear physics. I told you physics would be here, Martin. In physics, they believe, 
because physicists believe, scientists believe, that electrons are both particles and waves at the same time. <laughs> they can't be, but yes, they are. <laughs> the physicists are arguing back. The physicists are Yeah, whatever. <laughs> can I say? This doesn't, this doesn't paint the church well when the heckles are about scientific accuracy of words. <laughs> What I'm trying to say is, these don't fit, whether it's a photon, electron, or a, I don't know, a shamrock. They're useful, but they don't grasp the entirety of it. They all fall down at some point. They have to, because we cannot grasp the full complexity, wonder, bizarreness, and incomprehensibility of one God in three persons. And C.S. Lewis really helps um, understand our not understanding. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, get it, read it, it's classic. He describes that we are two-dimensional beings. We live on a plane which is completely flat. We can see in front of us, behind us, to the right and to our left. That's all our existence. And so if you have another square like that, another 2D object, you have one there and one there, that's three. One plus one plus one is three. That's our frame of reference. And then 3D comes along and a cube exists. But we can only ever comprehend it one face at a time because we live on that plane. I think it's a brilliant way of understanding our lack or inability to fully understand. It gives us a hint of what the reality is, but only a hint. I've got this picture because I think it even drives it home even more. It's based a little bit on the work of Carl Sagan, another physicist there, thank you very much. Um, God the Trinity is like a triangle, but maybe it's a triangle made out of three triangles, all being one triangle. But actually, what if this triangle is more than just a triangle, and actually it's a pyramid? Um, maybe it's more than a pyramid. It's actually a pyramid which is in constant motion and dynamism. Richard Rohr talks about the, the divine dance of the Trinity. Maybe it's because we can never fully pin down the Trinity. We can never fully pin down God because he is Father, Son, and Spirit. We do not know how that works. Not bad, but it still doesn't grasp it completely. It still falls down. I want to ask, is anyone's brain hurting yet? Great, excellent, then I've achieved my bill. This is important because if we could fully grasp God, it wouldn't be God. We just have to sit back and wonder and go, wow, God, you're amazing. So, the truth is, if we had made, if we're making God up, we'd choose an easier model than this, wouldn't we? And in fact, that's what we see when we see what people have made gods out of. They're easy, they're manageable, they're definable, they're squeezable, they're controllable. God says, you can't box me in. So we come to the final pieces. Why is it important for us to grasp the Trinity? Why is it important for us to not just go, oh, well, it's too complicated for my little brain? It's important because of who God is. In John, 1 John chapter 4, it says that God is love, but it doesn't make sense if God is not Trinity. Let me explain. Uh, a theologian called Jared Wilson says, a solitary God cannot love. He may learn to love. He may even yearn to love, but he cannot 
be love because love requires an object. It needs a lover and it needs a beloved. It needs a giver and it needs a receiver. And so if God was on his own, he could not have been love until he created something. And so if God is love, he must exist in some kind of mutual relationship. And that is what we see. In the eternal trinity, we see love, the essence of God, from eternity to eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit. They have been in this community relationship of pure and real love from eternity to eternity. And it explains our deepest longings as humans for love, for acceptance, for belonging, for relationship, for connection, because we are made in the image of God. We are not made in the image of a guy with a long long white beard and a white smock. That's not who we're made in. We are made in the image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so if we are made in the image of God who lives in eternal relationship and love, there's no wonder that our, our needs reflect that. It makes sense of where love comes from. We are made for community, for love, for company, for interdependence. And we'll look at that a little bit in the next number of weeks. And it's a reflection, an echo of the ECAD, the unity of community within the Godhead. And this perhaps explains those deep needs that we have, but it also explains the theological reasoning, not just behind meet God, but also behind meet friends and make a difference. That's the theological thinking behind it. And so we draw towards the end. We've seen the importance of the Trinity because it is just, it is God. It is how God's revealed himself. It's important because we cannot get our heads around it. That's really important that we accept that and marvel in it. It's important because it explains the essence of the Godhead, which is love, but also it tells the whole story. In our prayers, in our worship, in our familiar habits, in our words, we have favorite phrases. We maybe even have a favorite of the Trinity. We were talking about this um, in, uh, in the team the other day that, you know, whenever you're done, which, which aspect of God do you kind of connect with? If you know, a number of years ago, there's a big furor over the um, publishing of a book called The Shack. And there was a movie called The Shack as well off the, off the book. And there was a lot of furor because it, again, captured the Trinity, one aspect of the Trinity. And it was the Trinity meeting this one man at his point of need. And he has conversations with different parts of the Trinity. It's actually a really beautiful homage to the Trinity. It is not a theological document, but it tells you something about the beauty of the unity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit with one person. It tells the whole story. Perhaps we're aware of Father, and we equate that with Creator. We're aware of um, Jesus, the Son, and we equate that with Redeemer. And we think of the Holy Spirit. We think of Sustainer. Actually, all of them are involved in all of these. So in creation, God says, let there be light. But actually in Genesis, it says the Spirit hovered over the waters. It says in John chapter 1, it says in Colossians, it said that the Word was responsible for creating the universe. The Word that was made flesh in Jesus. So in creation, we have Father, Son, and Spirit. In redemption, we think, that's Jesus, isn't it? What about the Father's love? God loved the world so much, he gave of himself. And Jesus came among us as one of us and died for us. And what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is there to convict us with regards to sin and righteousness. It is involved in redemption. It is also involved in resurrection. And then we think about the spiritual sustainer. Well, actually, what about the fact that 
well, actually, it's C.S. Lewis again is a really good example. Is, is when we pray, we experience Trinity. Because the drive for us to pray comes from a, a movement of the Spirit of God within us. Our direction of prayer is to the Father. But the only reason we have any knowledge of the Father, only reason we can access the Father, is through the bridge of Jesus Christ. And that is within our prayer life. So the Trinity is involved in the sustaining and the sanctifying of us to glory. The Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father are involved in creation, in the incarnation, in redemption, in the atonement, and in sanctification. But perhaps a good way of looking at it is this word interfaces. And I find it really hard to kind of get diagrams to explain this. But actually, Creator God was the main interface of creation, but the Spirit and Jesus were heavily involved. In redemption, the main focus, the main interface was Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, God amongst humanity who died in our place. But the Father and the Spirit were involved in that. Because if you're experiencing one face, if it's a pyramid, you're experiencing the entire shape. And what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is how we interface with God now. He has left his Spirit with us. And so this passage in Ephesians 2 really sums it up. For through him, Jesus, we have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. And this is the picture that I tried to draw, but I don't know how to do it. Imagine that cube that C.S. Lewis showed. Can you imagine that? And we're living on that flat plane. We access that cube by the cube coming into our plane of existence. And that's God made flesh. And whenever God made flesh comes into our plane of existence, our 2D plane of existence, we are found to be within the heart of the community of oneness that is God. And so if we look at Ephesians 3, it says about, I pray that you will grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the Father's love for you because we are enveloped by the Trinity. We are at the heart of God. Trinity is important, isn't it? One final thing. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It's reflected in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And it says this in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's a reflection of Isaiah. I don't think the angel's needle was stuck. I don't think they had a repetitiveness. I wonder, I wonder if this is more than a coincidence. This is a God incidence where the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Amen. Amen.